October 31st, 1570, and all of, of Europe. And during those days, Martin Luther began to expound those things and to teach on those things that were in the, the theses. And as he sought the, the reformation of the church, he never thought to separate from the church. It didn't come to his mind when he was thinking about us to reform the church. May the church see her wicked ways and change and turn and repent from them. Well, as he preached on those things, he taught on those things, the Catholic church would have none of it. And three years after posting the theses, this is before Twitter and um, before blogs, it took three years for the church to think about this, right? They came forth with their official response to the theses on June 15, 1520. So two and a half years later, it was called the Bull of Excommunication. Okay, that's not good for Luther. The Bull of Excommunication. The Bull condemned the writings of Luther prohibited anyone from reading, printing, or publishing any of his books. It um, said that all who come into contact with his books are commanded to burn them. And so that was the official um, status of the Catholic Church, the official tradition of the Catholic Church, the inerrant, infallible teaching of the Catholic Church was to burn Luther's writings because you should not read them because they are heretical. And Luther's response was typical Luther. In December of 1520, so this is whatever, six weeks, six months later, he, he gathered his students and professors and ceremoniously took that bull, that copy that he had, and ceremoniously burned it in the fire for all to see. It's as if he spit on these papal writings and he pronounced these words. As the Pope has vexed the Holy One of the Lord, may the eternal fire vex him. Just Getting back at him is what Luther was doing. And soon after that, then, Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms. We talked about that uh, a while back. And he thought he was going to debate these ideas. He thought it was still an issue of debate. But when he arrived, it wasn't a debate. He was asked, commanded to denounce his writings. And that, of course, is when Luther made his famous statement, you know, unless I'm, 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 I'm stuck with God's conscience, here I stand, I can do no other. Now, when Martin Luther refused on April 18th of 1521, his life was at stake. And um, he was given three months safety to get home. But after that, the Catholic Church made no promises. Said, this is, this is how it is. And uh, so on his way home, Luther was kidnapped. He was ambushed by a, a, a company of armed horsemen. They appeared suddenly from the woods. They stopped his carriage pulled him out, put him on horseback, hurried away at full speed and brought him at midnight to the Wartburg Castle. Now, he was kidnapped by some friends because they knew this three-month moratorium, three-week moratorium to travel home would be up and we didn't know, they didn't know what would happen to Luther, so he, he captured him and hid him away in the Wartburg Castle. This was a time, actually it was a year, for Martin Luther to continue to read, continue to meditate. He um, he. He translated the New Testament into German, which I think you can still read today. Is that, is that the common, like the King James translation of German? Maybe not. So it's, it's pretty popular, about probably like the King James. I, I might, it's kind of what I, what I think. Had a great effect upon the Reformation in Germany and uh, allowed him to just continue to refine his thoughts about the Reformation. Well, while, while Luther was inside, the Reformation was still happening outside because his ball was rolling and he couldn't stop it. And there was a man named Andreas Karlstadt who is, is right there. What a, a good picture of, of the handsome gentleman there. He was a, a colleague of Luther at Wittenberg. And uh, he took the lead on the Reformational activities in, in Luther's absence. And Karlstadt was very sympathetic to Luther's views, embraced them with all of his heart. And in fact, embrace them maybe with too much of his heart. If, if you know what I mean, oftentimes it's that the student um, grasps more what the professor says than what the professor says and goes far beyond. It's a, it's a pendulum swing in some regards. And the student lacks the, the wisdom and patience of the teacher. And without Luther there to temper the cause, here's Karl Stott in, um, in, uh, in Wittenberg changing the mass. It was huge. Um, Laying aside the priestly dress, which is huge. He took a wife, which is huge. And, and perhaps the greatest damage, the thing I want to focus on and think about, was 
that, that Carl, what, what Karlstadt was doing in his revolt in light of the second commandment, do not make any idols, his revolt against the uh, pictures and images in the church buildings. Um, now, Martin Luther was against the, the pictures and images, uh, maybe not as much as Karlstadt, but he would have them be removed in a different way. Karlstadt basically violently broke into these churches and encouraged people to do this, take down those statutes and break them, cut them into pieces and burn them. Where Luther in Wartburg was not very pleased. Yes, he desired a reformation, but in the right way. Philip Schaff, the great historian, wrote this. Luther saw the necessity of some changes, but regretted the violence with which they had been made before public opinion was prepared. And he feared a reaction which radicalism is always likely to produce. And so Luther returned from his seclusion in Wartburg to Wittenberg with a goal to establish some peace in Wittenberg. And just to say, hey, let's calm down here now. Um, there's, there's a better way to do this. And he preached in eight days, eight consecutive sermons about the things that were happening in his absence, trying to restore some calm. And he believed that the actions, though not not the, uh, maybe not the spirit of them, but the, the end of them weren't wrong. It was the means to the end that was wrong. And in one of those messages, here's what Luther said, and you will hear, hear some familiar words in this, but this is what he said. He said, I will preach, speak, and write, but I will force no one, for faith must be voluntary. And that is huge. Faith, faith must be voluntary. <clears throat> Take me as an example. I stood up against Pope, died at Worms, 95 Theses. I stood up against Pope, indulgences, and all papists, but without violence or uproar. I only urged and preached and declares, declared God's word and nothing else, which, if you know the personality of Luther, that in and of itself was amazing that he was so reserved. He said, and yet while I was asleep or drinking Wittenberg beer with my Philip Melanchthon at Amsdorf, the word inflicted greater injury on popery than prince or emperor ever did. I did nothing and the word did everything. Had I appealed to force all Germany might have been deluged with blood. Yea, I have been kindled a conflict at a worm so that the emperor, I might have kindled a conflict at worm so that the emperor would not have been safe. But what would have been the result? Ruin and desolation of body and soul. I therefore kept quiet and gave the word free course through the world. Do you know what the devil thinks when he sees men use violence to propagate the gospel? He sits with folded hands behind the fire of hell and sits with malignant looks and a frightful grin and says, ah, how wise these madmen are to play my game. Let them go on and I shall reap the benefit. I shall delight in it. But when he sees the word running and contending alone on the battlefield, he shudders and shakes with fear for the word is almighty and takes captive the hearts. So Luther, Luther's saying the same thing as Karlstadt. Let's, let's, let's make some of these reforms, but let's do it a different way. Luther wanted to reform things from the bottom up. Teach the people the word. Let the word get into their hearts. Let the word get into their minds so they might, might see it. Let, let people cha be changed by the power of the word. Karlstadt, on the other hand, wanted change from the top down. Right? He saw the evil of these ways, and so he just wanted to change it and hope that the people came through. Luther's... Strategy, I believe, is the, the better strategy. And, but they had a conflict, and Karlstadt and Luther then were never on the same page again. Karlstadt continued his ways and went more even um, to, towards Zwingli's side in the Reformation, which there's, uh, I would be more with Zwingli than I would be with Luther in the, the Reformation. So some things that I, I'm very much in sympathy with Karlstadt. But, but they separated with Luther, and there were some issues. But, but here, even in their separation... They were still totally united with respect to the doctrines of salvation, with respect to the solas that we have been looking through. We go to the, the next slide here. We've been looking at Rock Valley Bible Church this, this past month, these past five weeks, at the solas. Um, these are the things that the Protestant Refor Reformation were united about. These are our foundational beliefs to what the reformers held. Sola Scriptura. We look to the Scripture alone as our authority, not Scripture and tradition or the church magisterium. Sola Fide. We are justified by faith alone, right? Not, not by faith and our works. 
Sola gratia, we're saved by grace alone. It's not grace and our free will. It is God's grace entirely. Solus Christus, we're saved by Christ alone. It's not Christ and the sacraments. It's just Christ alone. And this morning we get to soli deo gloria. We live to God's glory alone. Now, as we've been looking at these, we embrace them. Just like Luther and Karlstadt, though different in terms of church politics, in terms of church polity, in terms of how they function, how you bring this reformation, just different, but very united here. And we just say, we stand with Luther, united on this. We stand with all the reformers, united on all these things. And I just want to just remind us, the church, we're not a Johnny-come-lately church. We're not a wind of doctrine. We're not just, it's not that we just came up with this, hey, this is how we, we see the Bible. We see the Bible just like the reformers did. As we believe the reformers rediscovered what the Bible teaches, original biblical Christianity and what that's all about. So this morning we come to the final sola, soli deo gloria. That is to God alone be the glory. Now, I bring up this issue with respect to the smashing of the images and the icons and the statues with Karlstadt because that was an issue about glory to God alone. These these statues we're, we're causing people to, to pray to the saints and, and drawing people away from God, focusing the direction upon, uh, attention upon people rather than upon the Lord. And so they said, these things are bad because they're taking away from the glory of God. So let's just get rid of them. It's exactly what Luther was aiming at with his 95 theses. It was the glory of God. Remember, in Luther's day, what provoked him to post these 95 theses? It was Leo X, one of the most worldly of popes, who was urging his bishops and his priests and his cardinals to, to raise money so as to be able to finish St. Peter's Basilica. Basilica is just another name for church. To, to finish this building. And, and this building was, as you might use a, a modern word today, it was posh. Right, guys? This building was posh, and you'll see how posh it was. But he was strongly said, grant indulgences, right? Give, give these people promises that they or their relatives will spend fewer years in purgatory because of the money they give. And it was all about money. It was all about fundraising. Luther saw right through that it wasn't about God and his glory. It was about Pope Leo X and his glory that I get to finish St. Peter's Basilica, though he never quite finished it in his lifetime. He, he made a, a mighty a contribution to that. But here's the effect is that the uneducated and the illiterate and the, and the poor contributed great money out of their poverty, out of ignorance, thinking that it's going to help them in their next life. But it's not. And it wasn't. And it was a big deceit. And, and here are these people, the poor people getting poorer still, while the rich Catholic Church was amassing her own wealth. And by the way, that, that continues today in the Catholic Church. You, you go to third world countries, you go to Hispanic national uh, places i've heard of huge nice ornate catholic churches in the midst of slums see the church ought to live like the people live it's what jesus did and he dwelt among us but that's what's happening this giant basilica and peter saint peter's basilica is no small project can we go to the next next slide here chuck this is saint peter's basilica maybe you've seen this have you seen this place before this is in, in Vatican City. It's kind of like the church of church of the Roman Catholic Church. And what you have there is you have the square is what it's called. When, whenever there's a new pope there, oftentimes that is flooded with people. Uh, Easter time, it's flooded with people. And the, the pope will, will get right up there in the middle. There's some place and uh, speak to all the people there in the in the square. You can fit half a million people in that square. This is huge. If you look, see those statues, kind of all those hundred, all those statues kind of around the whole rotunda and up, up 140 of those statues. And I don't know the exact type, but those are all like 20 feet tall at least. All these statues kind of right around there. And so that's the square. And then you got the building, which is the basilica itself, which is beyond that, which is a uh, large in and of itself. And, uh, um, we can go to the next slide that this building, this room here, I've got a I got a, a bottom map here, like a like a, a above look. And I've got the, the view inside. If you go inside, you just kind of see the massiveness of this and the sun shining through. It's beautiful. Right. But you got this big column and you got this big square thing in the middle. And then then beyond that's 37 and 36 kind of right there in the middle. And uh, this is 700 feet long. That's like an eighth of a mile long. This room is. 
500 feet wide. This room is five acres big or six and a half football fields is this is this room. Um, you can fit, I think it's 50, 60,000 people can fit in this building for a, a church service. And uh, that happens uh, on occasion. Um, I, I did a little research and found this building contains more than 100 people. It's a, it's a tomb beneath the floor um, where 91 popes are buried here, including Pope John Paul is, is buried here. Um, St. Peter is buried here. Like the Apostle Peter you read about in the Bible, tradition has it he's buried here. We don't know if that's really true or not, but tradition has it. And there's the tomb of, of Peter. We don't, we don't know. But a lot of uh, popes are buried there. Uh, 10,000 square meters of mosaics. Mosaics are like are like a permanent art structure with uh, like little tiny tiles on them. So when you look far away, you can kind of see this artwork. So it's artwork that endures the test of time. 10,000 square meters. I mean, it's just kind of because the whole walls of all that is just flooded and the ceiling and the dome, all that just, just packed with um, these mosaics. Furthermore, all sorts of stained glass windows are there tapestries on the walls, um, uh, more than 100 statues inside. That's not counting the 140 uh, outside, and most of them are more than 10 feet tall. So I have a friend I had lunch with this week, and, and he was telling me how he got to go here. And uh, here, here was his impression of, of this place. And um, he said, yeah, you walk in, these huge columns leading right down the middle. And so you can see that just right there on the, on the things. He said, the place is enormous. And uh, on these these statues or these columns or these huge statues and, and there's one saint after another. There's this saint this or saint that or saint that. And you can see all those numbers there are statues. The the big numbers of what boys is just A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, D, all, all the way up to O. Those are statues. Those are actually double statues because there's a statue below and then there's a statue above of, of all these of all these saints. And then he talked about how you go right up front and there's Mary there. But, there's, but on the left in the front, he said, there is Peter. And so if we go to the next slide. Here is the, the statue of Peter. And uh, saints make a pilgrimage here and they they rub his foot. Many saints come and kiss the foot of the statue of St. Peter even today. So look at his foot nowadays. Right? He doesn't have leprosy. He, he's got a disease where it's human hands rubbing disease on marble is what that is. Just because it is so worn out. They do that as an act of devotion. You know, it's, it's a little bit like you've been down to Springfield. You've seen the, uh, Lincoln's tomb. What are you supposed to do when you go to Lincoln's tomb? <laughs> rub his nose. It's all, it's all like, like clean. It's a little bit like that. However, that's just kind of like, hey, that's, that's what we do. We just rub his nose. However, this is genuinely religious that he is sitting. I, I'm not sure if he's right over his tomb or not. His tomb is there someplace. Like you are, are seeking him and asking him to pray for you. And here you're kissing his feet. It's, a, it's very much a religious act of devotion. And he said that, my, my friend did, when he described in this place, he described Peter up front, and he said, then way up at the cross, real little like, is a crucifix of Jesus. That's how he described it to me. I couldn't, I couldn't find a picture of the crucifix of Jesus here. I was kind of looking for it, but I couldn't, couldn't find it. Maybe it was in that big square thing in the middle. Uh, there was something smaller. Maybe that's what he was talking about. I'm, I'm not sure. But Soli Deo Gloria. Now, there's nothing wrong with a large church building. In, in fact, the, the largest religious organization in the world ought to have a huge place like this. I mean, it only makes, makes sense. But here's the question. Is a church like that, is it built for the glory of God? Or is it built for the glory of man? It certainly is a way to build a great building for God's glory. Case in point, the temple in Jerusalem. Um, that was a great building. In fact, you remember even the disciples when they were walking away, see what great building this is. And Jesus said, well, there's not one stone here that won't be left unturned. But that was a great building. And that's God said how to build this building. And it, it was it was big and enormous, but it wasn't wasn't filled with this sort of sort of thing. St. Peter's Basilica. Kind of opens up a little bit when you see the dedication of the church. Here's what it says for the dedication of the church. In honor of the Prince of Apostles. Who might that be? Peter. In honor of Peter. And Paul Borghese, the fifth. Pope in the year 1612 and the seventh year of his pontificate. 
That's who the official dedication of this building has. It's to Peter and the Pope who finished it. And, and Michelangelo, who, who did the dome, this huge, huge dome, it's, it's very incredible what I, I read. It says, to the glory of St. Peter and Pope Sixtus V in the year 1595th of his pontificate. So, to whom is the glory going for this cathedral? It's going to Peter. It's going to the, the Pope. I, I was just reading this week in um, Acts chapter 10. When Peter comes to Cornelius, remember what, Peter, what uh, takes place there? First thing, he comes to Cornelius, and Cornelius bows down to worship Peter. And Peter says, get up! Get up! He knew his right place. He knew that he was just a, a sinner saved by grace. But these words about being dedicated to Peter, I think Peter is probably rolling over in his grave right there, if that's indeed where he is, is, is there. See, the church building this basilica, and by the way, it wasn't all finished at, at, at this time. It just kind of, it's all completed, all renovated, all this, this sort of thing. It's very interesting. You can, I mean, there are, you can go and tour this place. Seven to ten million people tour this place every year. I'd say if you're in Rome, tour the place. Go. And see it and kind of be amazed and just understand the Catholic. You don't need to, you don't need to worship Peter's feet. I don't think it's wrong to touch his foot. Everyone touches his foot. You can do that, but not out of religious significance. But I say go because of just the ornate, like, like I hope when we go to India this next time, Ivana, I hope we can get to the Taj Mahal, which is like this Muslim place, but it's a, it's a huge place. It's a testimony to, to man and their, the greatness and kind of look at that, that burial place. But this is all Renaissance perspective. See, the Renaissance and the Reformation were going on at the same time. It's when people's eyes are being opened. And the, the Reformation was happening in Northern Europe and the Renaissance was happening in Southern Europe. The Renaissance was all about the glory of man. But the Reformation was all about the glory and grace of God. And, and in fact, even this basilica was a lot of the, the Renaissance uh, artists were there because they're in Rome. I mean, Rome is Southern Europe. And so they were all there. Michelangelo um, did a bunch of design work and building work. Bernini did a bunch of stuff there. Just these, these talented Renaissance uh, artists did a lot of things. But add to this whole pomp that it's built on the dimes and nickels and pennies of the peasants, hoping to see the loved ones burn sprung from purgatory and I, and I hope that you see that this is exactly what Martin Luther was going against. In fact, this is what stirred Martin Luther to write the, the theses. It's because we're, we're taking all this money from the poor to build this grand thing and it's not even for God, it's for us. And these are the sorts of things the reformers were protesting. Luther never saw St. Peter's completed, but he saw everything that I have talked to you about today, how it's a monument for the glory of man and all the reformers knew that. All the reformers knew the church is for God's glory and that our lives ought to be lived for God's glory. So our next slide here. And so we come this morning to Soli Deo Gloria. And this has been the custom. I've tried to give you a little bit of history behind these, these solas. And then we've gone to the Bible. So we're going we're gonna to go to the Bible here as we think about the glory of God alone. It's not the point of my message where, I, where I'm turning. And uh, so we think about the glory of God from a biblical perspective, and many have argued that the glory of God is the central theme of the Scripture. And there's lots of people that say, well, the, the Bible is a, a book of redemption, the story of, of Jesus and God redeeming a people for himself. That is absolutely true. Um, but what about those he doesn't redeem who are in hell? How does that, how does that fit? And it, it fits with the glory of God if the end of our redemption is God's glory and the fact that God is glorified in the condemnation of sinners who refuse to worship him. Uh, some say the book is about a kingdom, a kingdom of God is building. And that's exactly right. But what's the end of that kingdom? The, the end of the kingdom is the, the glory of God or promises made and promises kept or what promises made in the Old Testament, promises kept in the New Testament. It's a good way to put it together in terms of promises. But the promises all do what? To highlight the character of God and the glory of God. And, and I believe this is why the Westminster Confession begins with a statement. The question, right? What's the chief end of man? Everyone who knows that the chief end of man is to. Glory to God and enjoy him forever. There it is right there. Soli Deo Gloria. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, I love what John Piper, how he starts his book, Desiring God. If you just read this, this page and digest it, um, 
It'd do wonderful things for your soul. John Piper begins his book by saying this. You might turn the world on its head by changing one word in your creed. The old tradition says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he says, like ham and eggs, sometimes you glorify God and sometimes you enjoy him. Sometimes he gets the glory and sometimes you get the joy. And is a very ambiguous word, Piper writes. Just how do these two things relate together? Evidently, the old theologians didn't think that they were talking about two things because they said the chief end, not the chief ends. That's huge. Glorifying God and enjoying him were one end in their mind, not two. How can that be? And I just encourage you to read Desiring God. It is a book that he says is all about explaining that one word, how and. And then he argues that and really means by. So he changes it a little bit. There's one word that he changes in his creed to make all the difference in the world. He says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. They're one thing. As you enjoy God, you then give great glory to God. And of course, then his his motto, which many of you know, if you know it, let's say it together. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, you find your satisfaction in God. You're willing coming to God out of joy and and delight because of of who he is, your delight there. That's going to give God more glory than any forced obedience. See, God gets no glory when he forces people into obedience. He gets glory, all glory, when people are drawn to his beauty. It's like a husband who's drawn to his wife and just can't, just loves his time with his wife. Loves to lavish her with gifts, loves to be in her presence, loves to see her face. Just, that's where his find his joy. And what, that honors a wife rather than a husband who just says, I'm doing my duty, wife. I'm washing the dishes because you need the dishes washed. And I'm doing this. <laughs> but when he says, I want to lighten your load. I want to help you and encourage you. And, and so you, you do those things. You help or you, you spend or you. That brings great honor to a wife. And that brings great honor and, and joy to God. We're to enjoy God. And as we enjoy God, he is glorified. And the greater our, our joying Our satisfaction in God, so is the greater glory of God. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. God is more glorified when we are more satisfied in him. That's kind of how how it works to define our happiness and God's glory to really be the same thing when we find our happiness in God. And you just read anything John Piper writes and and that that goes. But it's no accident that that the... um, uh, Our purpose statement at Rock Valley Bible Church has these very same words, right? Rock Valley Bible Church exists to, help me, to enjoy His grace and extend His glory. And, and the idea of that is to just to, to bask in the grace of God, what we're doing here in the solace. To enjoy God's grace and then from there extend His glory. We can enjoy, as we enjoy His grace truly, we do extend His glory, but that glory then goes out. That's why we go to Nepal. That's why we give. That's why we, we do vacation Bible school. That's why we go out and hand out tracts. That's why we, we push forth, because we want to extend His glory, because we so enjoy His grace. Okay, so I come to the last 15 minutes of my sermon this morning, and I say, okay, <laughs> glory is the, the theme of the Scriptures. I got 15 minutes. How you can do that? We could go to a passage like Phil read in Psalm 29. Everything's describing glory to God. We could do that. We could go to Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to thy name be glory. That is solely Deo Gloria, right? Not to us, but totally to you. Maybe you can think of some other passages that we could go to. So I'm just going to like take a little slice of this because the word glory occurs more than 300 times in the Bible. But there are times when glory isn't even mentioned, but it's all about glory. So take, for instance, Genesis 1 and 2. The creation of God. He speaks and the world comes to be. Is, is all about the glory of God. And yet, you will search in vain for the word glory in Genesis 1 and 2. 
It's just not there. Even though it's all talking about that, that, by the way, is a failure. Oftentimes people think the word studies is the end all end all of everything that you can do. It's not you're going to miss it unless you you thematically. What is the creation about? It's a a creation of this omnipotent God speaking and everything coming together so that it works so perfectly. Like I thought much about this before, about just the laws of physics. He speaks them and so that everything works so that light works magnetism and and electric electric currents running perpendicular to each other in such a way that light exists or weak forces strong forces gravitational forces magnetic forces they all work together and then chemistry how god figured all that chemistry stuff out where you just add you know right like carbon oxide is poisonous but carbon dioxide is something totally different you just add these different Protons and neutrons, all of a sudden everything's changed. Chemistry is, is amazing. And biology, how we, we have never been able to produce life. And God did it the first time by just announcing, let there be creatures. And creatures swarmed and able to multiply. It's just amazing what, what God did. The creation is all about the glory of God. And, and, and there are passages of Scripture that, that say, worship God, wait at the end of the book, Revelation 4. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God is worthy of glory. There you see the 24 elders glorifying God for the creation, though the creation account itself says nothing about glory. But you can read back and countless Psalms tell about glory. So as we think about glory, the Bible is far bigger than a word study. Tom Schreiner Professor of the New Testament introduction, Interpretation at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary wrote an essay called The Biblical Theology of the Glory of God. It was, it was really good. He, he, here, let me just read the section headers of his essay just to give you a, a thrust of how predominant God's glory is. God's glory is in creation. The fall as the refusal to glorify God. God's glory in judgment. God's glory in the call of Abraham. God's glory in faith. God's glory and the law. God's glory in the Davidic covenant and the promise of the new exodus. God's glory in the Psalms and wisdom literature. God's glory in the kingdom and his son. God's glory in Christ and the gospel of John. God's glory in the epistles. God's glory in missions and worship. And you just go all the way throughout. And you're going to just see God's glory throughout everything. So, so, I, so I thought about Solidio Gloria. Let's just go to a passage in Isaiah. So go to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. I just come to this verse. It's kind of just a very small verse deep in Isaiah. But I do think that it communicates solely Deo Gloria. Only glory to God alone. Isaiah 42 verse 8. God says this. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, if you will. That is my name. My name is Yahweh. And my glory I give to no other. I'm Yahweh. And I have my glory. And I give it to no other. It's only me. Soli Deo Gloria. And then you see where glory is parallel here with the next phrase about praise. Nor my praised praise to carved idols. Praise and glory. Much the same thing. Or when the elders said, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power and praise and blessing and dominion. All these are what glory is about. They're just different synonyms. And here we see a synonym of praise. So anywhere you got praise in the Bible, lifting God up, that's a way of glorifying. So all of a sudden you look, got to look in the Bible for all the word praise is offered. And that's, that's many times. Hallelujah. How many times those are. But God says he's worthy of glory. He alone deserves worship and he will not tolerate worship of any other gods none other not these carved idols not these images see see god is a jealous god remember in the the first two commandments when he said do not make any other idols right you shall have no other gods before me do not make any idols god said this you shall not bow down to them or serve them or rub their feet as an act of piety for, I added that last part. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers and the children, the third and fourth generation, to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who keep my commandments. And that's the message of Isaiah 42, is that I'm the Lord, 
That's my name. I give my glory to no other and my praise to carve idols. I'm not giving any of my glory to any statues. And Karlstadt got it exactly right that these images, these icons and these statues in churches are dead wrong. Let's get rid of them in the church because they draw our attention away from God. And we we glorify this saint for doing that and this saint for doing that. And pretty soon we're worshiping them. And pretty soon as the um, Eastern Orthodox Church does, they kiss them. They bow down to them. And it's not it's. God doesn't want us to bow down to any idol, any carved image, any statue of any saint. Regardless, he wants us to, to bow to him and him alone. And, and its glory is to be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 42. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it. The coastlands and all their inhabitants. So he's going to the wet places. And then verse 11. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The, phil- the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Right from the seas to the mountains to the wet to the dry everywhere. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his heel. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He showed him. I'm sorry. Verse 12 is what I'm looking at. Let them all. Let them all give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastland. So let everything give their glory to God. This is solely Deo Gloria. All should be glory just to God alone. And again, we see the singing praise. Verse 10 It's a parallel idea to giving glory in verse 12. This is a call for all the earth and God has made himself known in all the earth. Psalm 19 speaks about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Just every day, God's glory is being proclaimed. And it's going to say, are you going to respond to my glory? Are you going to respond to my glory? Are you going to respond to my glory? And if you've ever seen the sun, if you've ever seen the stars, you ever felt the heat of the sun, you have seen the glory of God. There's only one response. It's praise to God. Just thanks to God. It's honor to God. Anything less is sin. And, and Romans 1 spells that out so well. It's right where our nation is. You want to say, where, where is our nation? Our nation is in Romans chapter 1. That's a, a good passage to know, like the, like the back of your hand. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For that which is known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, our nation, we think we're so wise. But as God has made himself clear, we've denied that and pursued our own thing. Look at how wise we are. Let's just go our own way. And the response of of Romans, you can see that in verse 24, 26 and 28 says God just gives them over. He says, if that's what you want, then you go ahead and you delight in your sin. I, I have shown you my glory. You've not responded to it. And he'll be glorified someday in his judgment of the loss. Right, verses pertinent to us, 26 or 27, it's talking about same-sex marriage. It's talking about homosexuality. That's a, that's a result of turning away from God. That's a result of Darwinian evolution coming in years ago and just pulling its course. So we can explain everything by what we have. I think verse 32 speaks about our culture today. Though they know God, that God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know that. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And that's what's happening today. We want people being forced to have approval of people in their sin, because although they know that their sin is leading them to destruction, they want other people to join with them. And so they can sin happily to hell. That's what's happening. But instead of giving glory to God, we've taken it for ourselves. But again, as Isaiah 42, verse 7, verse 8 says, that my glory I will give to no other and I just say this, that our worship of God must be solely Deo Gloria because God will tolerate nothing less. We say, what about Israel? Did God tolerate something less with Israel? 
I mean, they didn't pursue after God, but, but did God destroy them? So turn over to Isaiah 48. It's interesting, almost a similar parallel passage. Isaiah 48, verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. See, so the wrath of God is against ungodliness, the righteousness of man. It's against Israel, but for his name's sake, he's going to defer his anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. In other words, you deserve to be cut off, but because of some greater principle in me, I'm not going to. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. But here is Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake and for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. And you say, well, what's going on here? Well, remember back in Exodus 32 when Moses is up on the mountain and he's meeting with God and down below, Aaron and his, his friends down there are making this golden calf and they're worshiping that calf. And God is angry with them. And he says, Moses, you go destroy them and I'll raise up from you, just like I did with Abraham. A, a nation's going to follow me. And Moses said, no, wait a minute, God. No. What about your covenant you made with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and this, this faithfulness to the covenant? And, and other people are going to see what you did and they're going to mock you. They're, they're going to say, oh, with evil intent, did God bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? You're going to be mocked, God, because you made this promise. You couldn't fulfill this promise. It's about you and your glory. You need to keep your people. And God relented and he kept his people because he was faithful to his covenant. Even though they were stubborn, and disobedient, God made a covenant with them so that in destroying them, it wouldn't bring a bad name upon himself. Because, see, even keeping Israel around was really about God. And God's glory for the sake of his own name. Look at verse 9. How many times he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. Verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake. See, it's for me and my glory. I'm going to defer my wrath on you. Because there's something bigger going on. There is the, the covenant of God, God's faithfulness. To his people. And, and that, by the way, is exactly where we stand as believers in Christ. Turn over to Ephesians 1. We're going to look there to see God's glory and, and our response. Ephesians 1 splits into right into half. The first half speaks of the incredible blessings that God has for his people. The second half is a prayer that Paul prays that we might understand the first half. Verse 3. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's like God has, has so blessed us. And he just goes through here and he just gives the blessing after the blessing after a blessing after a blessing. Right. He's the one that chose us. Verse four. He's the one that predestined us for adoption. Verse five. And it's all according to his will. Verse five. And what's the purpose? Verse six to the praise of his glorious grace. That is praising his grace, praising his glory through his grace and his kindness to us. And that's what Israel should have done. That's what believers in Christ do. We've, we've been shown this great mercy that it's sola fide, it's sola gratia, it's solus Christus. It's been made known to us, sola, sola scriptura. And it's all God's grace. And more. In him we have redemption, verse 7, through his blood. The forgiveness for our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. He's lavishing upon us, making known this insight. Verse 9, verse 10. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, it's all about his will. It's about what God does. So that we who are the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. As we believe in Jesus, we are to the praise of God's glory. Verse 14 even speaks about the Holy Spirit being the guarantee. Why? To the praise of his glory. Here is repeated again and again. In light of these incredible blessings upon us, when we didn't deserve it, we are to the praise of his glory. God didn't destroy Israel for his name's sake. He didn't destroy us for his name's sake either because it will give him great glory. See, God's love towards us. And all the blessings didn't come because we were good or joyful. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, he died for us when we were unlovely. And even it says in Romans 5, verse 10, that he reconciled us to his son when we were his enemies. We were fighting against God. And that's when God reconciled us, brought us in. That's why we rejoice in God, because the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. That's right. And if God saves us, our response is to give glory to God alone, not to ourselves, not to other people, 
but to God alone. As Paul said in Galatians 6.14, just right, it's probably on the same place that Ephesians 6 is, 6.14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There again is another soli deo gloria. That's the King James says it here in 6.14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. Glory and boasting, the same, same idea. Praising God, boasting in God. I will boast in nothing else except the cross of Christ. That's solely deal glory. That's the only thing I'm going to boast in. Philippians 3.3. 3. We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. There's no confidence in the flesh. We're worshiping, so is Christus in the Spirit of Jesus, and we're giving all glory to God, because we're glorying in the cross. That's solely Deo Gloria, only glorying in Christ. Because salvation is grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. That's what the solies are about. Okay, Romans, Romans 11. It's almost my last verse. I'm trying to finish here just to show you the, the depth of all, all this. This is a doxology to God after working through Romans and the gospel. He begins in chapters 1 through 3 with our sin. He begins and he then continues in chapter 4 and 5 about how righteousness comes through faith. And chapter 6 about the life we have in Jesus. A 7 of the, the struggles we have with our, our body and the flesh. In chapter 8, the secure promises that we have in God. And then he speaks in chapters 9 through 11 about the great sovereignty of God and his plan of election. And how he, he determined it's his mercy, it's not us and our will. So he says, and he gets to the end of that as he thinks and reflects upon our great salvation. He says in verse 33 of chapter 11, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Just meaning that this salvation is so wonderful. It's come so rich with so much wisdom, so much knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In some regard, Paul is saying, I, I can't even begin to understand what I've just written inspired by the Holy Spirit. I, uh, it's unsearchable. I can't understand. But I, I, I can grasp what I believe and what I, what, what I know. And, and that I give praise. How it all works out, I'm not sure. But God is merciful to us, sinners though we be. It says, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's become his counselor? Or, or who has he given a gift to him that it might be repaid? See, it's not, it's, we don't know fully. It's not this gift that comes. We, it's all of God's grace is what Romans is all about. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And in light of God's salvation to us, that's the only way to respond. And that's what all the solas are about. That's why Karlstadt and Luther could unite on these things because they unite on salvation, though they differ on other things. I'm just saying when it comes down to the core essence of the gospel, this is where we stand totally united with all the reformers. Here's the glory of God responding to salvation. But it's not just our salvation that we respond to. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, maybe this is your first verse that comes to mind when you think about the glory of God. So then whether you eat or drink, or remember what it says next? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's like a big everything else. Eating's one thing, drinking's another thing, but then there's this whatever else category. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So when you eat, eat to the glory of God. When you drink, drink to the glory of God. When you drive, you drive to the glory of God. When you talk, you talk to the glory of God. When you exercise, you exercise to the glory of God. When you laugh, you laugh to the glory of God. When you cry, you cry to the glory of God. When you choose your entertainment, you choose your entertainment to the glory of God. When you work, you work to the glory of God. It's whatever you do. And I'm sure you come up with a hundred more things of what you do. To the glory of God. Now, one of the things, the great legacies of the Protestant Reformation is something called the Protestant work ethic. That basically made sacred our secular work. See, in the Catholic Church, very sacerdotal, meaning meaning very, you've got the religious things and these people doing for God. And then you've got the non-religious things where people aren't doing for God. And the Protestant work ethic said, Soli Deo Gloria. No, it's all done for God. A plumber in his plumbing can be just as holy and righteous as a pastor in his preaching because it all can be done for the glory of God. You can glorify God as a professor. You can glorify God as a small business owner. You can glorify God as a part of a union or being a farmer or a factory worker or a stay-at-home mom. Listen, if all is to be done to the glory of God, all can be done to the glory of God. And all must be done for the glory of God. I do believe that's caught up in the Soli Deo Gloria. It's not only salvation, but also the whole manner of our life. And, and see, it's called the Protestant work ethic because 
Because you, you, you're giving purpose to people in their work when you say you can you can work for the glory of God. Whereas if it's just all about the, the church and the priest and this stuff, then then well, what's my peon job? But it's not. It's all for the glory of God. And so how do you do this? How do you live? How do you how do you whatever you do for the glory of God? In some regards, another sermon. I just want to take us to one last passage in a. I'll be quick. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He just says it real easy like. He says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your fathers in heaven. Here it is. How do you glorify God in all things? You glorify God in all things in such a way that when people see what you're doing, they will be drawn to the glory of God and not to the glory of yourself. I think that comes down to having a right attitude, thinking rightly, walking joyously, having a godly mouth, speaking rightly, speaking with edification, and working hard. Working hard to the glory of God. So you just filter this down, right? Whatever I'm doing, whether it's driving home, whether it's walking down here, whether it's your exercise, whether it's your work, whether it's your reading, whether it's internet surfing, whether it's, you just, just say, okay, this, someone's watching me. Would they be drawn to God because what you're doing? They are glorifying God. And I think just that perspective might might help in a tangible way. And I just say this. We've we've gone through these solis, solas. May they sink deep in our hearts. May we look to the scripture alone. May we trust that we're justified by faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. And may all of our lives be lived to the glory of God alone. So let's pray. God, strengthen us in these things. I know that they are uh, glorious truths. God, of your abundant grace, that our salvation is not at all praise for us. It's all praise to you. And that our lives we live, it's not praise to us, not to us, O Lord, not to us we sing. But to thy name be glory. To thy name be truth. God, thank you that you are a God who's filled with loving kindness and grace and mercy. And that at the cross of Christ, we find all our sins forgiven. So help us and strengthen us these days to live out the implications of the solace. God, that we would know them, we would embrace them. We'd learn more about the, the Reformation and see where we stand historically. So help us, oh God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.